these men. You are ready to become a member of the League of Shadows. But first, you must demonstrate your commitment to justice. Oi, Your compassion is a weakness your enemies will not share. That's why it's so important. It separates us from them. You want to fight criminals? This man is a murderer. This man should be tried. By whom? Corrupt bureaucrats? Criminals mock society's laws. You know this better than most. You cannot lead this man unless you are prepared to do what is necessary to defeat evil. Where would I be leading these men? Gotham. As Gotham's favored son, you will be ideally placed to strike at the heart of criminality. How? Gotham's time has come. Like Constantinople or Rome before it. The city has become a breeding ground for suffering and injustice. It is beyond saving and must be allowed to die. This is the most important function of the League of Shadows. It is one we performed for centuries. Gotham must be destroyed. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine, and welcoming back uh, a guest who's been on before, and that's Derek McDuff. Derek, how you doing today? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm happy to have you on. Uh, it's funny we've been doing this show for you know this is episode one forty or one thirty nine or one forty somewhere up in there that we're recording this, and in all those episodes, um, it took us a long time to talk about any of the Nolan movies, and only and we've only talked about. The Dark Knight Rises. You're you're on today to talk about Batman Begins, and we still haven't talked about The Dark Knight, which <laughs> is the the um, the Godfather of superhero movies, as the popular opinion goes. So it's it's kind of funny. It's taken us this long to get to the Nolan films. Yeah, that's that's kind of random, especially since yeah, you would not expect uh, The Dark Knight to be the last one that you guys mm. talked about. But you yeah. know, I, I just love Batman Begins so much, I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, but before we do, um, so uh, why don't you give people just a little brief reminder of who you are? Yeah, so um, I am Derek McDuff. I uh, am one of the co-hosts of the Underrated Podcast. It's a film podcast where we look at underrated movies. Um, I also do a couple other podcasts, including one on Marvel movies called Infinity Stones and Dragon Bones, which uh, I'm, I think yeah, should be out before you guys hear this. I'm going to have... Uh, Perry on that show talking about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, so that's just kind of on new Marvel movies. But uh, yeah, I do a, do a bunch of podcast stuff. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We're, this one will probably be coming out in February, I believe. So they'll definitely be hearing the Wakanda Forever episode before that. <laughs> um, but uh, so one of the things I've been talking to people lately is just kind of asking what kind of stuff they're into lately. So um, what it doesn't have to be superhero related, right? But what sort of like movies, TV shows, comic books, video games, whatever are kind of grabbing your interest right now? 
So now, you know, it's as of the time of recording this, obviously, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a little bit before, um, you know, this comes out. But I guess it's still kind of relevant because by the time this comes out, it's going to be Oscar time. And I have been kind of now we're in the we're in November as we're recording this. And it's the time when a lot of those movies those kind of like awards contenders, prestigious movies are coming out. Um, so I've been uh, seeing a lot of those recently. Luckily, I live in a, a part of the country where um, I can get to like an AMC and they'll be playing yeah. um, a lot of these limited to release uh, movies. I just got to see uh, Banshees of Sharon, which is a real contender for one of my favorite movies of the year, probably um, directed by Martin McDonough. Um, he's a really good playwright slash um, director, writer. Um, I just saw Tar. So I've been getting really into a lot of those kind of more prestigious movies at, at this time of the year, you know, October, I usually do kind of the spooky horror movies. And then once we get to the later months of the year, I get to all the awards bait stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. I haven't gotten into that mode yet. It's it's tough for a lot of those movies. We don't get them here until like sometimes like a year later in, in Japan. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's still the, the one everyone was talking about. I think it was, um, Maybe not last year, but you know, a few months ago. Or I can't, time has no meaning to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when you have kids, times when you have young children, time just kind of loses all meaning because you don't yeah. sleep much. <laughs> but um, everyone was talking about uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, and that still hasn't come out here. I don't think it comes out here until like February or something. Yeah, that is that is such that was one of my favorite movies of the year. It's definitely in contention for being one of the best movies of the year. I think it's this year has been really good with like multiverse movies. You know, obviously we had that we had Doctor Strange. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting, weird stuff. That one is just kind of this A24 darling. It, it, yeah, it's so interesting that the way release schedules work, especially internationally, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, something like an awards darling will not come out for a year or two. And then but then, you know. Uh, those big budget movies because you know a lot of the uh, the bigger studios like Disney and uh, Warner Brothers want to avoid spoilers they'll drop them day and day around the world so no one can right. be like oh wow this happened at the end of you know Black Panther or whatever so which uh, they did with Avengers here actually Avengers came out yeah. three months late here and oh, wow. so like everyone else in the world had already seen it I already had the, the Thanos reveal spoiled for me and then uh. Um, but after that, pretty much all the Marvel movies, for the most part, at least the big ones, like the, the big tentpole ones, they came out like same day. Uh, mm-hmm. Some cases before, like Civil War actually came out like a few days before it came out in America because of the there was a different holiday weekend starting before. Oh, OK. That's interesting. Um, but some of them, like I remember when I first came here, it was uh, 2000, summer of 2008 and mm-hmm like a year it would have been like maybe new year 2009 when i saw posters in the theater for 1408 the john cusack samuel L. jackson horror film and I that, came out that the, even existed <laughs> and i i already had that on dvd when i came to japan <laughs> that's it's or it's yeah and i know it's interesting because it works the opposite way too like um princess mononoke you know which mm-hmm. was a huge movie in came out in japan in 97 didn't hit the States until 99, you know, and I didn't really realize that until I was listening to um, one of my favorite podcasts, podcasts like it's 1999. And they're like, yeah, we're covering Princess Mononoke because it's a U.S. release of in 99. And I, I just was like, that's so bizarre to me. Well, I mean, Battle Royale, right? That came out in, in uh, 2000. Um, but the 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 media it didn't in the movie in, in the States didn't come out until 2010. 
Wow. Um, yeah, well, actually, no, that's... it was released in 2012, actually. But by that point, it had been bootlegged and everybody had already seen it anyway. Yeah, that's why I like look at these, like, uh, their release dates on, like, Letterboxd or something. And I'm always just mm-hmm. like, how is this movie, like, a 2007 movie? Like, I didn't see it over here until 2012. But yeah, those those weird, just staggered release dates. Yeah. And you see when things hit. And, yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, so, uh, like, as we said, we're talking about Batman Begins today. Um, so this was kind of like, this was like the big turning point for the Batman movies and kind of for superhero movies in general, because this was kind of coming on the end of the early 2000s, you know, kind of mid superhero boom that was going on when like all these studios were, were trying to make superhero movies in the wake of X-Men and Spider-Man, but they didn't really quite know what they were doing. And um, so we got a lot of stuff that was, you know, to be honest, kind of like middling to to awful, right? We had a lot of like the, we had um, the Mark Stephen Johnson's Daredevil movie, which was decent if you watch the director's cut. Um, but we also had his Ghost Rider movie, which was not good at all. Um, we had the the Tim Story Fantastic Four films, which um, by the time you guys listen to this, we've already done a pair of episodes on those, which had their heart in the right place, but they didn't quite match with the, the story didn't quite work so well. And, you know, then, you know, complete garbage, like Electra and Catwoman. And so we had this whole, we had a whole bunch of stuff that was coming out back then. And then it wasn't really until, um, Batman begins that I think there was kind of like, um, a renewed interest, kind of like, you know, breathing some new life into not only Batman, but into the, the superhero genre itself in film. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that, and uh, I kind of briefly mentioned Batman Begins last time I was on when I was talking about Spider-Man 2, which came out a year before this, because I feel like those two films really are, they kind of changed everything in terms of like superhero films, and they didn't start the like the big superhero boom that we are experiencing now with like the Marvel, uh, like the MCU, and just, you know, even like everything else just you know people talk about superheroes dominating the box office but they kind of mm-hmm. were like the precursor to that they were kind of like the last stepping stone before you got to that and i think in two very different ways like we already really talked about a lot how spider-man 2 set up a lot of the the things that you would see in marvel movies and kind of how it solidified what a certain type of superhero movie was and i think mm-hmm. this did that for another kind of superhero movie you see the two routes that the superhero movies would kind of go the kind of more fun marvel you know, quote unquote, bouncier route. And then you have the more self-serious, darker, quote unquote, like movie that's supposed to be like, this is a superhero movie, but what if it was set in, you know, the real world? And like, what if you got an auteur film director to come and step in? Because that was something they had always wanted to do, like ever since, you know, 97 and Batman and Robin, which was, you know, you know, I know there's some defenders of that movie, but it was a huge, huge, like people hated that movie. Mm-hmm. critically did bad i think it did not do very well financially killed the franchise for a long time and then when they were going to reboot it, they're like let's go a more serious route at first they wanted to bring in um so i think they always had an idea of doing a batman year one type movie right. originally they wanted to do a darren aronofsky led film mm-hmm. eventually um he kind of stepped away and they ended up doing you know the no the nolan movie and you know nolan wasn't nolan at the time he was kind of a more he had done some films that are some really good films stuff like memento some of these kind of indie, not almost awards baby. I don't know if any of them following or any of those movies got nominated for awards, but he was kind of one of those guys who was like, wow, this guy knows how to make a prestige film. So let's mm-hmm. get him to do a superhero movie. And that 
that realistic take of like get this guy who knows how to make a really good character drama with some interesting characters and just like give him the reins to make the superhero movie in the real world kind of ended up being like what DC was trying to do exclusively for a while and a lot of those type of you know the even something like that is still super very like not in the real world but like even Watchmen is trying to be very gritty mm-hmm. and realistic and I think that this movie really the, this and Spider-Man just set out the two routes that superhero movies are still kind of taking to this day oh yeah I think especially when you look at the Batman movies in general I mean um mm-hmm. I mean the the stuff that came after this right you had Snyder who was doing this I think it's kind of a, I guess I, you'd say it's almost kind of like a weird mix between um, Nolan and Burton because he's got all the mm-hmm. fantasy aspects in there too, but it's also got the really gritty st- style thing. So it's this kind of weird mix of the two. Whereas you look at like Matt Reeves and the Batman, I mean, that is, you know, yeah. straight up like Nolan, which is as much as I love the Batman. And I've said this so many times, and I'm probably going to keep saying it, but that's one of my biggest criticisms of that movie is that it's going back to that idea of what if Batman was in the real world? And I'm like, well, we saw that. We got three movies with that. We don't, we can do the, you know, we can do the more fantastic Batman now for, for a change. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's, that was very much what Nolan did here. And you're right. He wasn't, a. I think people in retrospect, people probably forget how, little he was known of at the time like his biggest mm-hmm. movie back then was probably um oh i'm blanking out the movie he did with al pacino and robin williams oh it was like this that's uh, not this fo- like murder fo- i always miss up mix up the names there's following and then there's i'm spacing no, on it, it too following you. it was in- like insomnia was like insomnia said, insomnia that was it yes thank you yeah yeah so it was this um and it was a it was a decent movie. It it had some issues, mm-hmm. but mostly it was pretty good. Had a really great Robin Williams performance. Um, and you know Al Pacino was kind of all over the place. But you, you watch that movie, and you could see definitely the the kind of DNA that you would see in like his Batman films. Like it's that very same type of idea. And I remember when he was announced because I had seen Memento, I had seen Insomnia. I'm like, oh, that guy he'd probably make a really good uh, Batman movie. Um, and, and he did. And um, But I think what really kind of sold me when they announced this was when they said that they got Christian Bale. like, mm-hmm. And Christian Bale, at the time, he wasn't a very big name actor, but I knew him um, from American Psycho and loved him in American Psycho. And I remember me and a buddy of mine back then, we would always do like our, we were both movie buffs, we were both comic book fans. We'd always do our fan castings of who we'd want to see play these characters. And um, Two of the ones we talked about, and like two of our favorite picks, um, Christian Bale as Batman and Tom Jane as the Punisher, and both of those ended up happening. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, that's great. No, yeah, and I think I think you know it even goes kind of further than that of like this movie being you know like uh, something that would set the tone for superhero movies because it it made it okay to reboot things. It made it okay mm-hmm. for it to be like, okay, we had this series of Batman movies. And in the past you would be like, all right, we got rid of Burton. We're done with the Burton series. We're going to technically continue this series, but not really mention anything that happened before. We're just going to recast right. it, get a new director, do all this stuff. And that kind of became almost the norm for a while. It's like, all right, well now we need to bring in somebody new. We do we start something new and we can actually have a fresh slate. But I think that, it not just affected superhero movies, but 
that was a huge impact on just movies in general. Because mm-hmm. while the Batman movies were doing that recasting, but never really commenting on it, everything else was kind of doing this. Like, look at the James Bond movies. They spent 40 years recasting and just being like, ah, oh, here's the younger guy. How is Pierce Bronsman, you know, like the same guy as Sean Connery is the same mm-hmm. guy as Roger Moore. We're never going to really mention it. And then the year after this comes out, um, I mean, they were probably in production at the same time, but I still feel like it affected it somewhat is Casino Royale comes out and it's like, here's a hard reboot of the James Bond franchise. And we've gotten so many just like hard reboots. We're starting this franchise over again. Um, And you can trace it all back to this. And I think this movie does not get talked about enough of how important it was in changing not just superhero movies, but just the entire way that we look at these big franchises. You know, even something like Planet of the Apes, the new Planet of the Apes, or new-ish mm-hmm. now, I guess, the um, Planet of the Apes trilogy with Andy Serkis, it's so good. It's so incredible. And it only exists because, you know, it's instead of doing that, like, just, oh, we're just going to kind of, like, reboot the movie like they did with the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. It's like, all right, we're going back to basics. Here's the origin story of Caesar. Here's the origin story of Batman. Here's the origin story of James Bond. And all that stuff, you know, you can kind of really look at Batman Begins as giving us that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think people might forget that back then, if you had if you had a movie and it was you don't do you don't do a clean slate unless like a lot of time has passed. And then Mm -hmm. and even then you're not like using the same premise, but making a different movie. You are remaking that movie. Right. So when they did exactly. So when Tim Burton did Planet of the Apes, right, he remade Planet of the Apes. He didn't make a he didn't take that concept and make a new movie. It was a remake of planet of the apes. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, like you look at, yeah, James Bond films are a good example, right? They all continue. Um, and it almost, it was very much like the, the, the logic that comic books use, right? It's, you know, it's on a sliding timeline, basically They're, they're They never explicitly explain it in the media itself. And it's just up to the fans to kind of go along with it. So, how did Spider-Man get his powers in 1963, but he's still like only in his, you know, mid twenties, <laughs> maybe late twenties in, um, in, uh, in 2020. Well, it's because it's a sliding time scale and there's only been about a period of like five to 10 years that have passed in the Marvel universe in that time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of how the Bond movies operated too. Right. And you'd have little tongue in cheek references. Like when George Lazenby came in, he, the very first thing he says in that movie is, you know, this never happened to the other guy or something like that. Yeah. Um, but there, there are clear references to stuff that has come before. Um, you know, Timothy Dalton's Bond um, when he's at uh, uh, Felix Leiter's wedding, and he's he's looking kind of despondent. And two people are talking, and they're like, "Well, Bond was married before," which refers back to the Lazenby movie. And there are references, you know, lots of connections between you know Tracy Bond from Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, and. Um, Electra in the world is not enough. Lots of lots of like thematic connections like that. Little thing, little Easter eggs that are thrown in for the fans to pick up on. You can find those all throughout the movies. But then after Die Another Day, it was and you know they were originally going to be doing another movie with Brosnan, and then and like and like you said, I'm not sure how the produ- productions overlapped, but I do remember at some point the Batman Begins buzz was definitely there even before mm-hmm. the movie came out. And at some point they're kind of like, well, maybe we should just try to restart it all. And, and so then they did that with, um, with uh, Casino Royale. 
and other, and other stuff followed too, like horror movies. Like you know, you had the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Halloween. You had uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. All of those after this movie came out, boom, you got pretty much hard reboots after that. Um, and then Spider-Man, right? After Spider-Man 3, mm-hmm. like just a few years later, all record time, like it had never been that fast before, we get The Amazing Spider-Man. And again, hard reboot. And then mm-hmm. even, you know, Superman Returns also started another trend of, you know, going back to these old franchises and picking them up again and continuing them. So he did that and just kind of like altering what some of the stuff. So like, okay, well, we're going to pick up after Superman two and then put this movie in there and ignore Superman three and four. And now you've got a lot of movies doing that approach too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, cause even Spider-Man, you know, they rebooted with amazing Spider-Man. And then just a couple of years after that, again, they rebooted oh. it, you know, and obviously they, they kind of just recently brought all those movies back into the fold, but that really just speaks to, you know, how the culture had changed. And it's like, okay, we can just kind of keep Spider-Man rebooting this thing until we, we quote unquote, get it right. Or, you know, you know, and I mean, obviously that's a big part of it was the rights and everything with the Marvel and Sony and everything. But I do think that does really speak to that and how, I don't think reboot was really a thing anyone said. It was not in our like vernacular before this movie. And, and now like, it's so ubiquitous that there's a TV show called reboot and everyone knows exactly what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and which is a great show, by the way. Anybody should check it out. It's a Hulu show. Um, but, you know, now, like, you don't see really, quote unquote, remakes anymore. Like, I can't think of the last movie that was just a straight up remake. They're all reboots now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or at least yeah, soft absolutely. reboots. That's the thing is, like, now I think everything is at least, like, a soft reboot. Like you were saying with, you know, like, how it's like, okay, well, Superman Returns kind of picks up after one and two and ignores three and four, or like how the new Halloween series, which just exactly. looked at the first one, which H2O also did, you know? Um, so yeah. Though H2O I picked up after the second one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so good. Yeah. So, and then this one, yeah. And the new franchise went back and picked up after the first one. And then even like, you know, the Terminator franchise, the later movies, I mean, you know, people have valid <laughs> criticisms of those, but they did some interesting things. I thought with, um, with Genesis where they were, using the original timeline so those movies still exist but then changing mm-hmm. the timeline and you've got a time travel movie so that's a creative way to do a reboot i thought too yeah the, how, the how well it works are... is a different story but it was a it was a cool <laughs> idea yeah the terminator movies are so interesting because they just keep like rebooting and you're like you're not sure what continuity anything is because there's like there's salvation and there's genesis and then there's mm-hmm. um whatever the new one that came out like two dark years fate. ago an hour was yeah dark fate and it's just like it's yeah it's kind of one of those things where there's so many continuities that's almost tough to keep straight and then you got the tv show too mm-hmm. right right so yeah yeah and um but i think it 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 shows something that i think comic book publishers have understood for a while and now movie studios are starting to catch up on which is that these audiences are smarter than you give them credit, right? They can follow these different timelines. They can follow these different interpretations. It's because I remember that being a, and, I'm, and you know, to give the studios some small bit of credit, they weren't completely wrong. I remember when this movie came out, Batman Begins, there were people talking on message boards like, wait, how has this come before Batman? The mo- how, is this, how is this set before the 89 Batman and all this? Because they're noting like inconsistencies between this and eight. I'm like, no, it's not a prequel. Because prequel mm-hmm. was kind of the, the big thing at that time. You'd had the Star Wars prequels and all that. And so 
everyone, th- a lot of people did think this was a prequel to the 89 Batman movie. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah, the way that that kind of for a while people were, would get confused by that kind of things or like, you know, when the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, to bring it back to those again, people were like, okay, well, how does Caesar do this? Because it can't, he eventually does this in the, those later Charlton Heston films and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, it doesn't, it's, this is, it doesn't have to connect to this. This can be its own unique thing. And I think by now, you know, most people know that. Um, but yeah, there was, I think, a little bit of confusion for a little while on that. All right, so uh, let's dive into this discussion. I think this is an interesting movie because I think it's it kind of gets forgotten about a lot because you know yeah. Dark Knight was you know you know just such a massive improvement over every aspect of this movie, and it became you know you know again like I said at the beginning of this episode, a lot of people call it the Godfather of superhero movies, um, and then you had the Dark Knight Rises, which not only ended the trilogy but also is just such a polarizing movie. And mm-hmm. where it's, it's got, it's, it's got, I mean, there are people who absolutely love it and they'll defend it to the death. But then you got other people who will, you know, decry it, you know, completely, but it's, and it's in both sides, it's hard for them to acknowledge the other side's arguments. Like the people who, who hate it, they almost find, they don't real remember that there are actually some interesting things in that movie. Whereas the people who love it, they're not willing to talk about the, the problems that the obvious problems it has. But Batman Beyond, Batman Begins gets kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit there. Yeah, no, I I completely agree, and that's why it, it was one that I I wanted to talk about because I think that it doesn't get recognized for how important it is, and it is a I think in my opinion it is a really really good movie. Like I obviously mm-hmm. I love the Dark Knight, um, and I actually I like Dark Knight Rises. I do think it is has a lot of flaws, but I generally enjoy it. Um, but I think that this one is probably, I would say the, for me, the best Batman film, um, personally. And I, um, as a, like, a, I just love it as a movie, but I think that it also, it's a better, whether or not you think that the Dark Knight is a better movie or not, I think that this is a better superhero movie because the Dark Knight is a really, like, it's interesting you use the word, the, the godfather of superhero movies, because it does feel like a crime movie. Mm-hmm. It feels like a Michael, especially like a Michael Mann, like, 1980s like heat or something you know right i think nolan even had the the cast and crew watch heat before making the dark knight where this feels like yeah this is a superhero thing even though it is grounded in the real world it does feel very superhero-y where there's you know like there's this big plot to like you know poison the city and you've got and you've got raz al ghul running around the scarecrow and it's got all these themes that i feel like are very inherent with superheroes just about like Mm -hmm about doing the right thing and about fear and overcoming your fears. And, and Batman is so built on trauma. And this movie is really about the trauma and him getting over all those things that happened to him as a kid. You know, obviously Batman is so defined by the death of his parents. And I think that mm-hmm. Nolan handles this really well. Um, and this Gotham just feels like a real lived in unique city. And like, he didn't just go and shoot in Pittsburgh or Chicago, like he did with the sequels. Like this feels like its own thing with like the narrows and the monorail that all feels like translating something comic booky into the real world. Mm-hmm. And I almost forget how just, you know, talking again about that, the death of his parents and how impactful it is. I forgot like until rewatching it, for this, um, how quick that scene happens in this, because mm. 
in my mind, like he Joe Chill shoots him and then the pearls fall. And because that's how like you've seen those pearls fall in a thousand times. They even make jokes about it, you know, right. in, in some adaptations where, you know, the Snyder one, obviously you just have that slow-mo thing. Even in the Burton one, it's just like very drawn out. And this is just kind of boom happens. It's just a mm. traumatic, traumatic event that just happens. And then he's just kind of sitting there and Joe Chill just kind of like runs away. And I love how in that moment, it just feels so real and visceral. And it's it's not overdone. It's not overly cinematic. You just are like, wow, this is the origin of Batman. This feels like, wow, this is how it really happened to him. Because, uh, I don't know, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But <laughs> <laughs> No, um, yeah, well, that's very well said, though. I don't really have any anything to add to that. But I did want to talk about the casting in here. So I mentioned mm-hmm. Christian Bale. And um, now I think... When it comes, when we're talking about Batman actors, um, mm-hmm. obviously leaving out Kevin Conroy, you know, who just recently passed away at the time of recording this, um, but and he was obviously the gold standard. But leaving out Kevin Conroy, um, what would you? And w- let's just talk live action Batman him here. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did play a live action Batman in Crisis, but that's a different story. Uh, but leaving out Conroy, what? Where would? How would you rank Christian Bale in Batman actors? He's always been like, he's always fluctuated but between my number one and my number two. He's always been like one or one A mm-hmm. for me because I just, I feel like he does strike a really good uh, balance of being somebody who feels like a real person, but is, is kind of, he also is like, this guy's kind of weird and broken and you could mm-hmm. see him dressing up as a bat. Like he feels like a good, he's a perfect Batman for this universe, for this kind of more realistic, gritty lived in universe. I, I love Keaton. Keaton is mm-hmm. maybe my favorite on any given day because Keaton is just kind of like, he's nuts. He likes to get nuts, you know, as he mm-hmm. says. Um, I, I've also recently be like Patterson, I think is really great. Like it's those three, they're always, all the three of them are always on the podium. Uh, mm-hmm. No disrespect to any of the other live action Batman, but like they all feel just broken and just like broken weirdos like people you think would just be like i'm gonna save the city by dressing up like a big bat and fighting crime and bale is a weird dude like he's always kind of like finding these different sides and aspects to the character i i think he was the best part of thor love and thunder like he's in a different movie than everyone else but he just finds this nugget of this character and really goes into it you can see how devoted he is just with like, you know, something like American Psycho where he's just mm. it's so insane and how he would just transform his body to play all these different characters. And he really just zeroes in and becomes these characters. And not in, like, a shitty Jared Leto just kind of like, oh, I'm going to, like, be a method actor and send used condoms to people. Yeah, he, he's yeah. like, it's like, oh, no, he's actually just, like, just, you know, like, ma- doing the performance just to do a good performance and not to just make it about how great of an actor he is. Right. Well, I think it was Pattinson who said that people seem to use method acting as an excuse to be an asshole. You never hear a method act- yeah. hear about a method actor who, you know, is playing a really nice guy and is just like a really nice person to everybody. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I, think he, I think he's definitely right, especially in the case of, of Jared Leto, right? It's obviously just an excuse mm-hmm. to be an asshole. <laughs> but, yep, but yep. yeah, Bill, he he really kind of dives into these characters he plays and he really, like you said, he finds these different aspects. Um, I'm kind of with you. I think Pattinson, I would rank lower just because I haven't gotten to see him play the, um, the playboy Bruce Wayne persona yet. So you don't have mm-hmm. that to compare it to. Whereas I think Bale, 
like Keaton does it in a much more subtle way, but he does have variations in the Bruce Wayne and in the um, Batman per persona, and also the Bruce the Bruce Wayne millionaire playboy persona and the Bruce Wayne you know damaged orphan persona we can call it because you see it in um, Batman Returns. I thought it was or even the first Batman when he's at the party and he's just playing this role of kind of like this absent minded billionaire when when he's following uh, Vicky and um, uh, knocks around the around the Wayne Manor, and then he just comes up to them randomly. He's like, "Oh, that's Japanese," and they're like, well, "How do you know that?" And he's like, "Well, because I bought it in Japan." And they're like, "Who are you?" He's like, "Oh, that's right. Sorry, I'm Bruce Wayne." Right? And he's and he's just kind of got this. And um, another time uh, in Batman Returns, when he meets Selena Kyle for the first time, and because he had seen her as Batman just like a few nights before, and he says, "He's like, oh, we've met." And she's like, "We have," and he's like, "No, you know what? I mistook me for somebody else." Right, and he just got those, but when he's in the when he's in the meeting with Shrek, right in Batman Returns, you could see that Shrek invited him in because he's like, "Oh, this is Bruce Wayne. You know, he's a he's a he's a fop. I'm gonna easily steamroll him, get him to give me all his money, blah blah blah." And then Bruce comes in here and he's like, "I commissioned this report," and he's and he just like you know, in a second he slips into like you know hardcore intelligent businessman persona. And when he's in the Batcave, right, he's like very much in detective mode and all that. He does, it's it's very subtle, but it is there the more times you see it. And I think he also had a really good handle on the Batman voice, using a different voice for it. Bale handles the, the differentiations between his Bruce Wayne, you know, public image, his Bruce Wayne, you know, real Bruce Wayne, and his Batman there are much more clearer delineations. You can, it, it's much more over the top when he plays like the playboy Bruce Wayne versus when he's playing like the, the serious intelligent Bruce Wayne. And you can mm-hmm. see those differences. And I think the, the movie, I think Michael Keaton got a little bit short change because Tim Burton was more interested in the villains too. So he didn't yeah. get as much time to, to really play up those aspects, but you know, Nolan, and one of the credits to, to Nolan is he gives a lot of time in these movies to Bruce Wayne and Batman. Whereas the movies before it, they kind of, the villains overshadowed Batman in every single one of them. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think that's one of the reasons I do love this movie so much as a Batman movie um, is because it really, other than maybe, you know, the Matt Reeves one that just came out, this is, Mm. I think, the only Batman movie I'd say where Batman is the most interesting character. Like, obviously, you said in all of the Burton and um, then the Schumacher movies, you have these, you cast these, these really big personalities to be the villains, just like everybody from Nicholson to Schwarzenegger. You have just these huge people. And then even in the later Nolan movies, obviously you have Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight. And then in The Dark Knight Rises, you have Bane, everyone doing the Bane kind of just like, oh, yes, brother. You know, like that was such a big thing. Um, and then even in like Batman 66, that's movies that's kind of really about the Batman's rogues gallery. Cause you have so many villains in that you have to give a lot of time to each of them. Um, so this one really just feels like the one that is diving most into the psychology of Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And something that I thought I uh, was thinking of when you were kind of talking about, you know, Keaton and um, kind of how he would have to switch back and forth between the kind of like affable kind of goofy Bruce. And then just kind of the serious Batman. There's a really great moment in this that I think shows off how well Christian Bale is doing that. And it's right after he gets out of that, restaurant or that hotel that he just bought with the the two like supermodels or whatever and they're mm-hmm. all wet and he just kind of sees Rachel and he just like you see the facade just kind of crack because she knows mm-hmm. him better than anyone probably except for maybe Alfred 
And right. he's just like so embarrassed that he's just been like putting on the show that he needs to do. And he's just like, this isn't me. And then she gives him that iconic line that he, you know, then says back to her later to reveal that he's Batman is, is like, she's like, it's not about who you are beneath, but it's what you do that defines you. And I think that is, <laughs> you know, such a theme in this movie. And to be like, yeah, you can do be a good person and do all these and, you know, uh, on do all these good things beneath. But like, your actions are what really speak. Like you have to like make the good person that you are a reality. And um, I think that the way that you see him just kind of like process all that and be like, you know, trying to be like, who am I really? Am I the Batman? And identity is always such a big thing in all of the Batman movies, but especially this one where, you know, it is just like about seeing other people and the fear that they have. And like people have these different perceptions, like Scarecrow is just some guy with a, weird potato mask but then when mm. people see him he's breathing fire and stuff or even when he sees batman he's got the spooky face um perception is so important to the themes of this movie yeah absolutely um and also i think bale and this is you know it's not something that keaton can control but bale looks like bruce wayne like he looks yeah. like i'd imagine bruce wayne to look like and i mean um bob kane who gets all the credit for creating batman although i think Bill Finger definitely deserves more of that credit, but he mm-hmm. said that Val Kilmer was like his looked like his perfect idea of Batman and Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. And I could see that. But when I look at Bale, I mean, I think he definitely does. Like he looks like a millionaire playboy. I mean, Michael Keaton, as good as he was, doesn't look like a millionaire playboy. Yeah. And it's interesting. Cause I, I, I saw like there was, I don't know if it was like, um, a com- like the Batman 89 comic or if it was like, I think it might've even been like some behind the scenes promos for like um, Keaton coming back in the flash movie. And they kind of like definitely touched up. It's cause like, you know, he's got uh, Keaton kind of now has the receding hairline and everything. And he's got that very, mm. ex- the widow's peak got even more extreme and they kind of like gave him like the hair that you would expect like Batman to have, you know, like, cause it, yeah, he doesn't have that like comic book chiseled Batman look. He just kind of looks like th- this kind of, goofy weirdo almost um that's kind of having a good time and bale has that classically just batman looks like he's pulled from the comics look Mm -hmm. well also and they really made sure to highlight the batman's physicality in this too because again Mm -hmm. something that the the burton and schumacher movies did was batman's not really very acrobatic or much of a fighter at least we don't really see it Mm -hmm. that much and big part of that is because you know, um, Tim Burton can't shoot an action scene to save his life, (laughs) but also it has to do with the fact that they're walking around in these big rubber suits. They can't even turn their heads in and Mm -hmm. Nolan, and they, they're still stuck with the rubber suits in this, which, you know, I, I wish they wouldn't have kept with the rubber suits. I can understand why they're trying to keep that idea of like, it's armor and they want to make, but, um, I would have preferred they had gotten away from the rubber and gone with something a little bit more flexible, but, Nolan finds a really good way to do that where he showcases Batman's physicality through like these really close ups, these quick cuts. So you see him beating the crap. You see more the aftermath of him beating the crap out of these guys. So you don't really have run to the problem of not being able to see him in action. Yeah. And I think that was something that I was thinking about a lot with during this rewatch is cause I, I thought like, okay, this is a great movie, but maybe the action's not great in it, but rewatching it, I'm like, Oh, it does really work with what they're doing. Like mm. when you first see him, like Batman first kind of shows up as Batman and he's like taking out all those uh, thugs of Falcone at the docks. And it's just kind of these quick cuts 
And it's kind of that it builds up this kind of this mystique of like him being this larger than life figure. Like you don't get to see him really like punching people. It's just like, what is going on over here? You can't even get a good glimpse of it. It's just because it's so quick. And it and then by the time you get there, just all these guys are knocked out. And then he just ties Falcone to the thing. And that's why like later on, you know, you have Crane's henchmen and they're just like, I hear he can fly. I hear that he's supernatural. I hear all these rumors. And it's almost like that episode of the Batman animated series where there's all the kids and they're telling all the stories about Batman. And yeah, just right. the way that these action scenes are shot and you just see glimpses. You're like, he could be anything. He could be a man or he could be a creature. Like, you don't know. Yeah, they really do a good job with that. I mean, that, you know, that opening scene at the docks, that is that is such a... And that was something that the the other earlier films or basically any adaptation of Batman, except for the animated series really didn't put a lot of focus on was the fact that, you know, he does, you know, one of the reasons why he can, you know, you know how to fight off six men, but we can teach you how to engage 600 that, you know, um, Ducard tells him is because he does strike from the shadows. Like that whole sequence, it felt like an Arkham game when you're in the predator yeah. mode, right? When you're going through and which is one of the best things about those games when you're going through as Batman and, grabbing, you know, armed enemies from behind or from above, or you're, you're taking them out with, with traps and all this. And that's something we had never seen in a Batman movie before this. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then, so I was wondering, so we were talking a lot about how great Christian Bale is, but I think that the entire cast in this movie, a lot of the supporting characters mm-hmm. are really phenomenal because obviously you have, you know, the legendary Michael Caine, playing Alfred. You've got Gary Oldman as um, as Commissioner Gordon. You've got Morgan, Morgan Freeman. You've got even like Rugger Hauer in just kind of like a side villain role. And then you've got mm-hmm. um, uh, Liam Neeson as uh, Ducard slash Rajal Ghul. And I think all of these performances are so great. None of them are like scene stealing or show stealing in a way that like, like a Jack Nicholson or like a Jim Carrey would have been as a villain in the older movies. But they all are really giving these great performances. Um, Katie Holmes is okay. I think I do prefer Maggie Gyllenhaal a bit. Um, but other than that, I absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the cast really worked for me in this. Yeah. You know what? When I think of my ideal actor for, for Alfred, like who I think best captures Alfred from the comics, it's, it's probably a toss up between, um, Jeremy Irons and, um, Michael Guff. I think both of them really kind mm-hmm. of captured that. I mean, Michael Caine is definitely a close second, though. But I think um, those other two guys, they definitely mm-hmm. kind of captured a little bit more. Um, one of the things I like about Michael Caine, though, is one of the things that really sells Michael Caine is the relationship he has with Bruce. Like, you believe these two have this long and deep relationship for years. Like, I, that exchange... I mean, he's Michael Caine's got some of the funniest lines in this movie. <laughs> I hope you weren't a member of the Fire Brigade. <laughs> yeah, but that and like, you know, when he says, um, when he talks about how they're trying to get him declared legally dead, and he's like, well, it's a good thing I left everything to you. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you can borrow the rolls if you like, just bring it back with a full tank of gas. But like, just little moments yeah, like no, that, absolutely. it really kind of, but it also does a good, it also does a good, you know, bit of backstory because it explains how Bruce can be gone all this time and how he can still have all his stuff when he comes back. I mean, that, and that's something I had never considered before, but it, it makes total sense mm-hmm. now when you look at it. Yeah. I, I love all of that. And 
I, I think that lends itself really well to the world building in this film because this movie, definitely a lot more than a lot of the other Batman films that came before, I think does a great job with the world building and making you feel like I kind of alluded to before, like Gotham feels very real. It doesn't feel like they're just shooting on location of some other city. Like this feels like a real world. They allude to like the past. Oh, I got a backlot. Yeah, exactly. And they, well, how they allude to the past, like, oh yeah, there was these economic things. And then you find out that was later caused by the villains of the story. There has been this long thing and the league of shadows do feel like somebody that has been creeping around in the world. And they give over like, hey, we sacked Rome and we burned London to the ground and all this stuff. That all feels really cool and interesting. I I wish we would get to, like the Narrows and the Monorail just never come back in the other Nolan films, which is mm-hmm. just feels like a kind of a loss to me um, because I think those those aspects are are really cool. Um, but yeah, the yeah, Gotham think, just feels so real and lived in. Yeah, I think one of the big reasons for that is just because of because they Nolan had like a patchwork of different cities that he used to film to make Gotham here. So they they shot mm-hmm. some of it in Chicago, they shot some of it in Hong Kong. They shot some of it in London, I think, as well. And they, they kind of went all over the place to kind of patchwork Gotham together. And like you said, that makes it look... Their Gotham looks a bit more unique because of that. Whereas when The Dark Knight came around, um, the mayor of Chicago basically told Christopher Nolan, we'll give you anything you want. And then Nolan's like, okay, well, we're filming all in Chicago now. Which me, as someone who comes from Chicago, it, it is really cool to see my city in the background. But at the same time, also, you watch that movie and you're like, that's not Gotham. That's Chicago. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so that's one of the things I realize about it now. But um, and you're you're right. This Gotham does feel a lot more lived in because they are shooting in real places. Because you look back at the Burton movies, which as great as Gotham looks from a distance, right? You got the Gothic architecture and all that, and that looks amazing. When you get down to the streets it's a pretty empty city. You've only got like maybe 15 extras at a time in there. So it definitely does not feel lived in. In the Schumacher films, you have these weird massive statues and bridges that see, don't seem to connect anywhere. It's like a it's like an M.C. Escher painting instead. It's just <laughs> really bizarre architecture. So that doesn't feel lived in at all. Whereas this feels lived in. This Gotham, you know, you see the Narrows, you see the people on the streets, and all, that, all of that feels very real. Not only because it's grounded, but just because, you know, Nolan gives the city itself a personality that I think the other movies kind of didn't really focus on that much at all. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that one thing that do, that does a really big favor to the movie is that the whole subplot with Joe Chill and everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, in obviously the Burton one, they had they made Joker um, the one or Jack Napier as he was at the time, right. the one who killed Batman's parents. And then this is just some guy. And, you know, he just, he, he feels like someone who was a product of this environment. Like Rachel says, there's new Joe chills being created every day. Mm-hmm. And he came about because of the creation of the league of shadows. And, you know, in the old bat, you know, when he gets, kills the Joker, they was like, okay, there's, he's gone. And this one is all about like, Oh, he wants to get revenge. And it's on this person, but he's maybe focusing too much and he's about to become a murderer and kill this person. And that's probably a big part of the reason, the psychology of this Batman. Like he doesn't want to become a killer because he, he sees Joe chilled, uh, killed, but all this, the situation that created him is still intact, mm-hmm. you know, by getting vengeance on this one person, it's not going to change anything because as they say, vengeance is not the same as justice. And by taking out one bad person, like the guy who, uh, kill, like by making if they would have made him a supervillain 
and him like, all right, well, justice is served now. And that's something that a lot of superhero movies do um, where they're like, okay, we just took out the bad guy and now everything's solved. But this is mm-hmm. like, there is this, this kind of like economic problem, this over um, lying thing that maybe Bruce Wayne can address. And Bruce Wayne's, that's what Bruce Wayne's father spent his entire life doing was mm-hmm. trying to fix these larger problems. And it feels a lot more real and interesting in that way. And because they were able to make such a, unique and real feeling Gotham that all really works. Well, it's also a more complex portrayal of crime than you get in not only most superhero movies up until that time, but also just most movies in general, like the whole idea of, you know, economics leading people to commit crimes. I mean, you don't see that level of understanding and here, like, you know, if you're talking about, say, for example, um, you think about like the dirty Harry movies or something like that, you know, I think Harry would probably have been more on the sign with Rachel Ghul than he would be with Batman in that final decision. Um, mm-hmm. And you realize, you know, he's like he says, you know, um, he's Bruce is really out to save Gotham, right? He that is something he really mm-hmm. seems to care about a lot. And one of the 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 whole conversation he has with Rachel after he reveals that he came back to kill Joe Chill, and then she slaps him twice Mm -hmm. and she tells him you know your father would be ashamed of you that is such a great moment and it's something that we the batman in the movies before that you know he's a fucking sadistic killer i mean let's as much as i love keaton like i mean in batman returns he fixes a bond to a guy's chest and then smiles and then kicks him away i mean he sets another guy he turns the batmobile around on another guy and sets him on fire he goes into the joker's you know, chemical factory and just boom, machine guns and bombs everywhere. Like he racks up a bigger body count than, you know, some, some horror icons, like, you know, compared to, <laughs> to, to Jason or Freddie or Michael Myers. I mean, Batman's kind of a bit higher than some of those guys, but here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But his Batman, but Christian Bill, like, and then that scene when he's with the league of shadows and Ducard gives him the sword and they've got that guy, you know, bound and at his feet. And, you know, he just, and Bruce just looks at, looks at the guy and he looks at Ducard, he looks at the sword, he just shakes his head. No. And, and Ducard makes some good points. He's like, you know, Bruce, like, look, this man has to be tried. And Ducard, Ducard makes some good points. Like, well, by who, but corrupt bureaucrats, you've seen firsthand that this way doesn't work. And he's making good points, but Bruce is still like, but we have to be better. Like Mm -hmm. we can't. And that, Granted, it it's kind of undermined by the scene at the end when he tells Ducard, now revealed to be Raish, that, you know, I don't have to kill you, but I don't have to save you. It's like, you're kind of skirting the line a little bit there. <laughs> I mean, I always, always thought that was like, it was like, okay, well, I, that, that, I don't know why, but that line always worked for me. I was just like, he's like, yeah, I went out of my way to like save you before after blowing up your house or whatever. But you know what? I'm just going to like stop being the hero now for a second. Um. <laughs> Like it's, it's, you know, some philosophers would probably uh, disagree and be like, you know what, Batman, that's the same thing, but you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I do think that all of that really works. And I think that a gr- the great villains, in my opinion, are the ones that are kind of right, mm-hmm. that are just maybe taking things a little too far. And that's something that, especially with a lot of recent superhero movies, a lot of Marvel movies, you know, obviously you have Thanos, but uh, all these characters that you're like, yeah, you do have a point. You mm-hmm. are doing things that are right but you know it's the ends for them it's the ends justify the means and it's these people like batman 
Um, like all these other superhero uh, superheroes who are like, no, the ends don't justify the means. Killing, you know, thousands so that people in the future will have a better future is not justified. And but yeah, like that's why I think Liam Neeson is so good in this because he's not just some cackling maniacal monster who just wants to kill everybody because he's evil. Mm-hmm. He wants to do it because he's like, yeah, I am saving the world. I'm doing the right thing. I am justified in my actions here. Yeah, I think also um, this. I like what the movie did with the League of Shadows for the most part. In this movie, I think I really love what they did with the League of Shadows. When we get to Dark Knight Rises, they kind of undercut a bit of that. But in this movie, they find a really good way. First off, I love that they called it the League of Shadows instead of the League of Assassins from the comics. I thought that was a great change. Um, But also, when um, Ducard comes to to Bruce's party at the end, and right, um, Bruce... And this one, you know, socialite tells Bruce like, oh, I've been, I've been talking to the most fascinating guy. You should meet him, Mr. And I hate that they mispronounce his name. It's Ray Shalgul now. But, um, <laughs> but, and he says, and she says, and he, it's, he looks and it's, you think it's going to be Ken Watanabe, but it's someone else. And he's like, wait, you're not Ray Shalgul. I killed him or I watched him die. And then, then Ducard comes out and he says, but is Ray Shalgul immortal? Are his methods supernatural? And then Bruce says, or just parlor tricks to conceal your true identity. So my thought at this was they found a really interesting way to have Ra's al Ghul be immortal without actually going into that fantasy Lazarus Pit realm, where it's the whole idea is that Ra's al Ghul is a mantle that can passed down from leader to leader. Exactly. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what, what I, I thought. thought but then when we get to Dark Knight Rises, they undercut that whole thing. And they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Liam Neeson was always Ra's al Ghul. And it's like, well, then who started the League of Shadows? Like a lot of this whole idea of legend and mythology that's built up over a girl who's, you know, at most like, you know, 30 years old doesn't seem to really fit together very well then, but it makes so much more sense if it's a mantle that's passed down from leader to leader. And I thought that worked really well. And I thought, I really liked how they had done that in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it honestly, it it reminded me a lot of a movie that I love that nobody else seems to really love from the nineties where they do that same thing. And it's instead of being with the villains, it's the hero and that's the phantom. I, oh, I love yeah. how, yeah, like, cause they have that, they almost do like the same thing where that kind of main villain for the phantom. He's like, I killed him years ago, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, like, and it's like, obviously it's, you know, the phantom, the previous phantom. So Billy Zane's dad, and then they get to like the, the pirate ship at the end. And he's just like, over the years, plenty of us have killed phantoms. They, he's immortal. And I love that same kind of trope that they use here of like, oh, yeah, Rej al Ghul or Raj al Ghul, however they want to pronounce it, uh, is this kind of mantle that gets kind of passed down from generation to generation of this, you know, and that was a really good way to, like you say, this is something that it is trying to be real. It's something that happens in the real world. How do you make immortality something in the real world? And it fits totally into that, like, oh, the League of Shadows is all about doing these tricks and theatricality mm-hmm. and performances. Um, so it really worked with the kind of um, their tactics that they had already established mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah. Now, when we get into some of the more superhero stuff, I think actually that's where I kind of have more of a problem with this movie. Cause I, mm-hmm. you can tell that Nolan is not really a fan of superheroes. Um, and I think that kind of comes through when he gets the more superhero stuff, which is why I think, for him as a director, it made more sense for him to pull back and do something that's much more crime focused with the Dark Knight. Because um, when we get into the whole supervillain plot of destroying the city, and you have Raish and the League of Shadows using a microwave emitter that somehow evaporates 
water from pipes, but it doesn't do anything to the human body. Like it's the physics of that. Someone's got to explain it to me because it doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, but also I think, you know, Scarecrow is just such an interesting villain in his own right that I think he kind of gets, and I love what Killian Murphy does in this movie. And same thing with, uh, Carmine Falcone, like it's great character. It's great to put him in here, but I think that it kind of gets shortchanged because of all the other stuff that's going on. And there's just a little bit too much stuff crammed into one movie, I think at times. Yeah. I kind of, I wish that they had done more stuff with the scarecrow in like later films. Like I know mm-hmm. that he comes back in both the sequels, but they're just kind of glorified cameos. Right. And I was like, okay, cool. Like the way this movie ends, it's like they, they beat, scarecrow but he's still out there in the world and when are we going to see him oh he, batman takes him out in five minutes in the next movie mm-hmm. so I, I would have liked to have seen more of that i i do i do kind of appreciate that nolan isn't a huge superhero fan because i feel like that can be dangerous sometimes if you have somebody that is just like so beholden to superhero imagery that you will get something like the pearl scene in um, batman v superman because obviously mm-hmm. Snyder is a big uh, comic book superhero guy, and he's done so many adaptations. And I, I think, think he more, does a really good job with it. But he, he seems to be. I think Snyder tends to be more of a, just a fan of the imagery of superhero comics than the because when you, especially like mm-hmm. you look at Watchmen, it's like you didn't actually read this book at all, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that you know you can when you are just like so beholden to like, wow, we have to like, you know, exactly you know mm-hmm. piece for piece do this. It, it gets a little tricky sometimes. It can be a little messy, especially when you have a character like Batman who is so different depending on what interpretation you're mm-hmm. looking at. I, I kind of did like that we got a fresh perspective on it. Yeah, there is there is a fine line. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll compare it to, like I mentioned before, Mark Stephen Johnson and, and Tim's story. You, when you watch Daredevil, you watch those Fantastic Four movies, you could tell these directors really love this source material. But there's... Mm-hmm. And I mean, Mark Stephen Johnson, he kind of went a little bit over the top with some of it because it's like every time there's a mention of a side character, it's someone who had worked on the comic books. I'm like, we don't have to have that many Easter egg references. Um, uh, and in the Tim Story movies, like you can tell he really loved the source material, but he didn't quite know how to craft a good story around it. And mm-hmm. and yeah, you're and it, it is a definite fine line. I mean, I think you look at some of the the directors that Marvel has gotten. Or even like Matt Reeves, who you can tell is a is a, definitely a Batman fan, um, but he still manages to he knows when to lean into the fan stuff and when to pull back from it. Uh, and yeah, I, after we've had some of those people who were hardcore fans, they couldn't separate their fandom from the work they were doing. Nolan's more of in the vein of like maybe Brian Singer or someone like that, who someone who is not really a fan but is able to still tell still tell this story in a in a decent enough way. I mean that being said, I still think I still feel like he doesn't quite get a lot of the superhero stuff, which is why that stuff feels weakest for me in this movie. And that's why I think yeah, and when I, we do get to the Dark Knight, it works so much better for Nolan's sensibilities. Yeah, no, like I think like like I was saying before like Dark Knight is definitely Obviously, it's a it's so much more critically acclaimed because it is less of a superhero movie. I feel mm-hmm. like it is more of a Nolan crime movie. Um, but for me, this one kind of just strikes the right balance of Nolan's sensibilities with being a Batman movie. And maybe it was because it was his first time out, and because he was like, "Okay, we got to bring back Batman to its roots and stuff like that." 
that he was still feeling a little beholden to the Batman thing, but he was mm-hmm. still able to do his his own Nolan stuff that it did really just hit that exact perfect pH balance of like, you know, chemicals in my brain of like, this has enough of each of these things. And I, cause I am obviously a really big Batman fan. I'm a big Nolan fan. I like, especially a lot of his more kind of science fiction films, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like light, you know, um, I guess you would call it just kind of like, uh, like lighter sci-fi, um, you know, stuff like inception or mm-hmm. interstellar, um, hard, or hard sci-fi, I guess is, is what you would maybe call it. Um, but I do like a lot of that stuff um, more than his kind of like grittier, quote unquote, realistic things. So, yeah, this worked. Yeah, I think the Scarecrow thing is just I feel like this was just it was just so much of a holdover from previous um, iterations of this script because you had, yeah. you know, originally when there was going to be a fifth movie in the in the Burton Schumacher franchise, it was going to be Batman Triumphant. Scarecrow was going to be the villain in that. Um, when that didn't happen, you know, they started doing like the, the Aronofsky year one project, or was it dark Knight, or whatever it was. One of those Aronofsky was involved with one of those and they'd gotten someone else involved at some point. And I think the scarecrow had been persistent through most of those development projects, if I'm not mistaken. And so then they kind of got wrapped into, then I think he just kind of got inherited into this one. And, and again, I think Killian Murphy does, you know, such a great job, but I feel like the character just feels like he's so deserves so much deserves like his own movie, as opposed to just being a pawn of, of the league of shadows, because I mean, I could easily see a situation where you've got crane who is agreeing with the mob to, to take in these, to convince the the court that these people are insane to get them off out of jail time, but he's doing it because this gets him a chance to, to play around with his experiments. I think something like that would have, if it was highlighted, it would have made it been a lot more interesting and you could have done a whole yeah. thing just on that aspect of it. And honestly, I think that if this movie would have come out today, that we would be getting an HBO max spinoff of mm-hmm. Scarecrow. Like, you know, we're getting with the penguin and how they're doing this kind of whole wider Batman cinematic universe um, with all the WB properties, because yeah, I feel like it's the kind of almost the same thing that you're talking about with the penguin in the most recent one. Yeah. And now he's getting a bigger thing just for his own. And, you know, I'm just curious to see what would have happened if that had been the kind of landscape when this movie came out, if we would have gotten some more Jonathan Crane, Scarecrow mm-hmm. focused things. Um, that would be cool. Oh yeah. I mean, I think I, if I was rewriting this movie, I think I would have taken the league of shadows out of the whole, you know, after that mm-hmm. first act, I would have had them gone and not bring them back until like the second movie or maybe even the third movie. And, you know, and just focus for, and just had the rest of the movie focused on the Scarecrow. I think that would have been, uh, I would think that would have been a lot more interesting for that character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I was kind of really hoping, like I said, that he would be a much more prominent character mm-hmm. in the, the sequels, especially. Uh, so oh, I, that yeah. was one thing that kind of, I was let down a little bit by. Yeah. Cause Murphy gets so many scenes where you see that potential for how, how well he could play this character. Like when he's mm. just kind of like fascinated at, you know, the way like some of the patients are reacting to it. Like you could, the way he, the looks he gives in this, it, it really makes you think like, wow, this guy is really like, you know, thinking about how can I fuck with these pay- people even more to see what happens? Like he's got that yeah. look about him. And I think it would have been so interesting to see that explored more. Um, but I also and real fast. I just want to say with that, I'm, I'm so glad that I know it's obviously a different character, but that he is finally 
getting a chance to be the lead in a Nolan movie after being the like a supporting cast in almost mm. every one of Nolan's movies going back to Batman Begins. He's been in the castle and then finally he's going to be the he's going to play Oppenheimer in um, Nolan's Oppenheimer biopic. So I'm really oh, excited okay. to see him finally get a chance to to take that uh, center stage. Yeah, yeah. Um also I think I think probably one of the best things this movie did too was its portrayal of Gordon because <clears throat> the the Burton Schumacher films Gordon was just there. He did nothing. Yeah. You had no reason to believe that he had any real relationship with Batman. But here, Gordon is basic is basically treated as his partner. And and mm-hmm. you know, Gary Oldman does such a brilliant job of capturing Gordon's character and you know the the struggles he's dealing with being like the only good cop in a city full of corrupt cops and that whole idea of, you know, Bruce tracking him down and following him and figuring out which cops he can trust, which ones he can't, and then deciding to trust Gordon this much. I loved all of that in this movie. Yeah. And that was something that I feel like was, there's so many interesting thematic things that are set up in this movie that are just kind of abandoned in later films. But the one that does come back at the end of the trilogy that I think is so powerful is when, you know, Batman's going off to seemingly sacrifice himself. And he looks at Gordon. He's just like, yeah, something good. You can just like make such an impact by doing something, just as simple as giving a coat to a, like a young boy who's just lost his parents. Mm -hmm. And that moment, like that's like the start of like, you know, when Batman thinks he's lost everything, there's just this small act of kindness that Gordon gives to him, just like helps him realize that there is good in the world and he can trust people and he can trust specifically this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is a really powerful moment that luckily gets brought back later on yeah although i think that line in the dark knight rises was way too overwritten i think it would have that moment yeah. would have worked so much better if it was just you know maybe a silent look or something like that and then like a flashback image or something um because mm-hmm. especially because i don't like that one of the things i don't like about that moment and i talked about this when we talked about uh dark knight rises was that um my interpretation of gordon in the comics and also throughout these movies is that he knows who batman is but he's not saying it like that, that moment when he tells um, Blake in Dark Knight Rises, oh, I know exactly who he was. He was the Batman. I'm just like, okay, you know, you're just not saying it, right? You really know, though. But then at the end, when he looks kind of surprised, like Bruce Wayne, I'm like, no, 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 you're killing it now. No, but that's <laughs> just my, that's my personal headcanon, though. So that that's just my own thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, and uh, what was I going to touch on next here? Um, oh, Rachel. Rachel is... I think for okay, so if we're talking about all the love interests we've had in Batman movies, Rachel's not a bad one. Right? I'm not going to say she's a she's a bad love interest. I'm not going to say she adds nothing to the story. But when I think about what they did with Harvey Dent, and I think about you know we had just covered uh, just like two days ago, I had recorded an episode about the Long Halloween movie, and I think about the the Dent Batman relationship in the long Halloween comic book and all that. And one of the things I, I wish had done was instead of making this childhood friend be like his long lost love interest, that kind of, and this theme that carries out through all the movies so much so that after she dies, he retires as being Batman. I think that it takes away so much of that character where he's hanging so much of 
his future as Batman on this prospect of a happy ending with Rachel. I don't like that about that interpretation of Batman in these movies. Um, I think it would have been so much more interesting if instead of it being Rachel, that is his childhood friend that then becomes a district attorney, it was Harvey Dent. Mm -hmm. And that would have been such a great through line to connect this movie to the dark Knight, because then we have these two guys who they came up together. They both had these same ideals about saving Gotham, but then they diverge wildly. And then it, for Harvey, it just becomes a complete tragedy in the end. I think that would have been such a better thematic through line. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that especially in this movie, Rachel, she, I think when, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal is playing her and she becomes a more central, I guess, central character in the sequel, uh, I think she's a little better. But in this one, she basically just exists to be the voice of morality and to just mm-hmm. say the things. Like I said, oh, like Rachel says this, Rachel says this. She just kind of says all the things that the screenwriters are like trying to impose. Just oh, here's the, here's another moral for you, Batman. Here's another moral. And so she's not really her own interesting character. I mean... Yeah, like she's just kind of a, uh, I think she's a very 2005 woman in a superhero movie yeah. where it's just like they don't really know what to do. They just have to have a love interest who's going to say these things that are correct to the hero and motivate him and whatever. And um, at least she doesn't like it. I, I guess she kind of, he does save her for a second, but she is, you know, still doing her own thing. She has, um, she does have a lot of agency. I will give, um, I will give him credit, especially when you compare it to, like we talked about Spider-Man 2 and, mm-hmm. and those movies, like Mary Jane is just always put into the role of like the screaming damsel in the end mm-hmm. but at least i feel like uh and part of it's probably because of kirsten dunce but like she she doesn't feel like she has much of a personality mm-hmm. she just feels very just kind of like blank slate like hey i'm here to just say what you need me to say you shouldn't kill people your dad would be ashamed mm-hmm. blah 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 and you know nolan gets accused a lot of not really being able to write women which I feel like maybe he's just not great at writing people in general, but this, it really kind of comes through here that this is Rachel's just not a very well-written character in this particular mm. film. I think. Well, I think Nolan's big thing, I think when it comes to like story and narrative and, and characterization is, and I've noticed this in some of his other movies, because I think in some of his later movies, like after inception, I think he kind of, he started buying into his own hype a little bit too much. And mm. I think he kind of, cause there are so many Nolan fanboys now who think he can do no wrong. And I think, it feels like Nolan's bought into that a little bit himself. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of like ego definitely comes out when you look at some of this, like the, like you mentioned the character stuff with Rachel in here, but also the, the story structure, like the dark Knight rises. I look at there, there are plot holes so big. You can drive a truck through <laughs> in that movie. And it's just like, he's, he's so concerned with these thematic elements and these, these, um, you know, these themes and these other larger messages that he's trying to convey that I think he kind of loses sight of those story and character details in the process. Yeah, no, he, he's not a a character guy. He is a very, like you said, bigger picture, kind of like what are the larger themes? And especially if you watch something like Tenet, there is like those, the people in that movie, there's like one emotional moment in that entire movie. And the rest is just kind of like, Oh, I'm the protagonist. I'm going to do this. Like the character is literally just I don't literally just refer to him as the protagonist. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, a, so he's 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 very cold and just kind of yeah. If you had a gun to my head, I could not tell you. I could not give you a summary of Tenet. I I just could not do it. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just yeah, like, I so, watched that movie and I'm just like I I don't really know what happened here and I don't really care too much to think about it. 
Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's he, he, yeah. I think definitely, like you said, after Inception, he got. And I think that's something that happened. It's interesting. Um, there's this really great book by William Goldman where he kind of talks about how people get kind of appointed, anointed as these auteurs, and mm-hmm. they seem they can do no wrong. And then they're he talks about it specifically with Hitchcock about like how like Hitchcock made all these incredible movies, and then Psycho comes out, and people are like, "Wow, Hitchcock can do no wrong." And then after you know then he slowly kind of went downhill because he was just like yeah i'm alfred hitchcock i'm amazing i can just do whatever i want to and he was never really the same after that and i think you could you know argue the same case for for nolan after you know all his phenomenal success after the dark knight and inception um i do really really like interstellar as well i think that's another great movie but i think you do kind of get um and i do i do like all of his films but i think that him being like i'm nolan i've got to do the nolan thing have these Mm -hmm. big incredible set pieces that are moving around and doing all these things that some of the stuff like character uh, motivation uh, and dialogue that makes a lot of sense uh, gets lost in the shovel. Well, I think it also works with, with actors too. Like Johnny Depp is, I think the best example of that where, you know, he's such, he was such a versatile actor back in the day and he was able to do all these different parts. But then after he, he gets so much acclaim for Jack Sparrow, he just kind of just does the quirky thing every single mm-hmm. time he's in a movie after that yeah or like to keep with superheroes ryan reynolds incredible mm-hmm. actor like very versatile doing all these weird interesting things in the first half of his career he becomes deadpool and now he's just deadpool like mm-hmm. like somebody said i can't remember who it was um but they were like becoming deadpool was both the worst and the best thing to happen to ryan reynolds because he is able to get work so consistently and make so much money now, but that's all he does. You, you're not going to see him do another like smoke and aces or anything like that. He's just kind of the quirky, like, Oh yeah, I'm going to make a quick little quip here. Like, so yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in the case of, I don't mind so much when it with Ryan Reynolds, same reason I don't mind so much when George Clooney does that thing where he just basically plays himself or when Dwayne Johnson does it too, because in those three cases, like they're so entertaining that I don't care. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's good at what he does. I just, I just, I, I mean, I feel like Dwayne Johnson and George Clooney, they're both good actors, especially Clooney, but I feel like Clooney has never been that versatile, so I'm not, like, missing, like, oh, man, I remember when George Clooney would try and do this and this and this, but, yeah, Reynolds' early cut of his career was just, I feel like, so interesting, um, and I just, well, I think it's you, something we don't get anymore. I think I put Clooney up there above Reynolds, because I think if you look at some of the stuff he's done, like Syriana or Three Kings, I think he had showed a lot more or even like, you know, to a lesser extent, even from dusk till dawn, I think he showed a little bit more range in those types of movies. But then after, after a certain point, you just kind of like, I'm just going to be George Clooney. Yeah. He's kind of just, I, yeah, I mean, I disagree a little bit. I feel like he's always kind of been Danny Ocean, but I do see what you're saying where he was maybe trying to do a couple, some different roles um, Mm -hmm. early on. Okay. Um, Let's see. Uh, so what do you think about the Tumblr? the the redesigned batmobile in this let's talk about kind of like the the aesthetics of like the the, of batman that they that they go with in this movie and let's like the batmobile is probably the most obvious one yeah i thought i remember at the time really liking the tumblr and i I think it's definitely still holds up because you know obviously like we talked about they are trying to go that more realistic route and it's like how do we do that oh well wayne enterprises is now a weapons manufacturer Mm -hmm. and they have all these this r&d department that is just kind of collecting mothballs and so we have this this Tumblr thing, and I think it looks just so unlike anything we've really seen 
in a Batmobile before or even mm-hmm. since where it is just kind of this jagged, dark thing. And it is just kind of, you know, it is just able to just plow through the city and just fly over rooftops um, that I thought it was a cool, interesting design that felt it, it did feel like it can be in the real world, but it is still something not like anything we would see on the street. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the the mammoth Batmobile he had in The Dark Knight Returns, um, the comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's got that feel where it's like this, this whole, this big tank thing. I mean, I think it's fine for, for these movies. I would not want this to be like the default Batmobile going forward. I like something that's, you know, a little longer and sleeker, more like the Burton Batmobile or like what they did in the animated series. But I think for these movies and what they're doing, it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of the, the bat tech stuff works specifically for these movies. Like I wouldn't Mm want to see like you were saying this stuff in a different adaptation of Batman, like the current, um, like the one ones they were doing with like the Snyder, like that Batman, it would obviously not work, but here they're like, okay, this is Kevlar. This is, and they, there's like, it's stuff where it's like, Oh, this isn't real, but like, you could kind of like, it's just, it's close enough to the rally. You could be like, yeah, he'll, he'll stick a shockwave through a thing and he'll be able to glide on it. That's a good way to like bring Batman gliding into the real world. You know, one of the ones that I thought, I don't know if it really worked was the bat sonar, it was, it was one of those things in movies like he uses it once and it just never gets mm-hmm. used again. Um, that one I thought was a little bit goofy, uh, but for the most part, I, I liked a lot of it. I can forgive the sonar thing because of the fact that it was taken directly from the year one comic book. So I give the, mm. but otherwise I, you, you make a good point about it. Like it, they use it once, they never see it again. Um, I think they, I like the gliding at first, but I think they kind of overuse it a little bit. And I think it's telling why in later movies, then they stop using it at all, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, um, he, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I think, I'm trying to think, I remember him using it like a couple times and it, it just, yeah, it feels novel. Um, but, you know, uh, by the time you're rolling around a movie too, that does wear a little bit thin. So they're like, okay. And it's the same thing with, um, like, I like it the way his costume looks a lot in this movie. But like you were saying, he can't really turn his head. And it's something they directly address in the sequel. Like Morgan yeah. Freeman's like, you want to be able to turn your head. Um, and I thought that was interesting, you know, especially since you have like, it felt like the, this Batsuit felt like the next progression into the real world from like that fruit roll up that like he was wearing in Batman Returns where he just like mm-hmm. kind of tears it away. I, I do like this Batsuit a lot. Yeah. My one criticism of this Batsuit is I wish it wasn't all black. I wish they had had like you know put in some gray and like the bodysuit mm-hmm. thing to just kind of make that that bat symbol pop a little bit more i think that would have been nice mm-hmm. i did i am glad they went back with the gold belt because they had got, gotten away from that in the in the later schumacher films and they had just had like the belt and like everything was just like this black blue shade type of thing so i like that they tried to at least bring back the gold belt and i think it would have been nice if they had had you know some gray in there to kind of separate the bodysuit from from the gloves and from the boots, but also the way that they make the, the gloves functional with the, with the, the scallops on the end, they made that, they gave them a reason for that. And it comes from his experience with the league of shadows. I really like that idea too. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I thought that was a really cool thing without it feeling like too much. Like here's how Han Solo got his gun. It felt like mm-hmm. a very natural thing. It's like, Oh yeah. Like he's always had these things. We've never really thought about why they're there. And then you show him fighting with it. And I really thought all the way they introduced, his backstory because I mean, obviously we've gotten into comic books and stuff before, but we, and we've had a lot of superhero origins over the years, but we, up until now we hadn't really 
delved into how Batman becomes Batman and seeing mm-hmm. him get all this tech and seeing him kind of learn to become Batman and learn the tricks of like, oh, why is he theatrical? Like, why is he using all these shadows and these little gadgets and right. these little ninja techniques? And to see that it's like, oh, he learned from like this actual ninjas who are his enemies now and the League of Shadows that it all plays into it really well. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was a really, really well done. And we haven't really talked about him a lot, but um, Morgan Freeman, I think bringing in Lucius mm-hmm. Fox was, it was a surprise when they had announced that casting for me because I wasn't expecting A, for them to have Lucius Fox in this and B, for him to be such a crucial part of these movies. But I thought it, and in retrospect though, it it was it was such a great move because it makes total sense for how Batman's able to do all this stuff. He would need to have some help, someone on the inside of Wayne Enterprises to help him do all this stuff. So I thought that was such a great addition to the mythos that's really been picked up a lot since then because they've, you know, they brought it up in the comic books. They brought it up in, in other adaptations and as I'm not 100% certain. So nobody quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure this movie was the first one to give Fox that much of an elevated role. Yeah. I don't think he, I can't think, I don't think he was in any of the movies beforehand. Or if no, was he wasn't in the movies movie. before at all. Like I know that. Okay. Yeah, but I, it really works because, what, like we're saying, when you are doing this more realistic movie, you do have to be like, okay, how does it make sense that this guy exists in the real world? Whereas you can, in like a Burton movie, you can be like, okay, well, he's got all this stuff. And because those movies are a little bit less grounded in reality, you don't have to think about really how he got all of his tech and how he got everything. But in this one, you do need a character like a Lucius Fox. You do need to be like I was saying, oh, there is this R- underground R&D department that nobody really mm. talks about or whatever that exists in... Wayne Manor. So that character was really essential for giving us the take that Nolan wanted to have on Batman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. And then I want to talk just briefly touch on the, the ending here, because I mean, this was such a great way to end this movie was with that theme of escalation and then leading that into the next movie where they bring in the Joker. And like, I still get chills when I think about that ending when he comes in and he hands, he says, you know, there's this other guy, you know, robbery, double homicide, you know, has a taste for the theatrical and he hands him the Joker card. I thought that was such a brilliant ending for this movie. Yeah. And I really like it too, because this movie, you obviously you get villains that we'd never seen before in, um, you know, on the big screen, you get Joker and Ra's al Ghul. Um, and, and then they're like, okay, we know what you guys wanted. We know you wanted to see these kind of other legacy characters. We gave you something new here. This is Batman's origin story. And now he's going to meet the Joker. There's going to be something mm. else. So so hold off for that, guys. We, you, we haven't forgotten about the, the supervillain that you all love so much. We were doing something different here. But don't worry. There's going to be more coming. Yeah. And, he also, and I also love that they established very clearly that, you know, in this movie, they established that, you know, Bruce Wayne is the mask. Batman is the real person like they and that mm-hmm. again, this is kind of an example of Katie Holmes only being there to say things to the main character or to say things to the audience. So that at the end, when she's when he says, you know, Batman's just a mask and she says no. And she touches his face like this is the mask. Your true face is now the one the criminals see. I'm like, in retrospect, at, at the time, I was so excited when they had said that. because I'm like, yes, finally, they get it. They get it. Now, in retrospect, I'm I'm watching this. and I'm like, you're kind of doing that. telling instead of showing there but i'm glad the effort was made and that the idea was acknowledged yeah definitely because that is something that you know 
uh, people love to debate about like who is the real Batman, who's his real, ma- who, which is his real mask, mm-hmm. and the fact that they kind of directly address it. Like you say, is it a little on the nose? A little? Is it a little? Um, you know, it should be a little uh, tell, don't show. Um, but I think that it is a good point that they at least brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and the 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 voice like that was if I'm if I'm gonna knock Christian Bale for any aspect of his performance, anything that knocks him down to like being either on par or maybe below Keaton. It's the voice like that. I, and I don't think they were really thinking in advance because I don't think they realize how much they were going to need Bale to speak as Batman in the sequels. I don't even think they even really knew if there were going to be any sequels. Um, I think if they had had, if they had had a little bit more force forethought, they would have, you know, maybe done some audio manipulation on the voice or something, but like they did with um with they they did with Ben Affleck, but yeah, that voice it's just it it it's okay for the little bit he speaks in here, but when we get into the Dark Knight, it starts to border on the ridiculous. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say is that it works in this movie. I feel like because he's just he only uses he uses it very sparingly just mm-hmm. to intimidate criminals. Yeah. Whereas, and I think like retroactively, people don't like in this movie because of what comes later. But this movie it works perfectly fine. But when because he's only using it just to scare. But then he uses it like whenever he's Batman, like in the later, even when he's like Selena Kyle leaves and he's like, that's what that feels like. I'm like, why are you still doing that? It's just you. Why are you like, you're not performing for anyone. I had made uh, that so, comment too. And we talked about that. That, that was like, yeah. like you're, you're, you're completely alone. Why are you still using the voice? Exactly. And that's something that those sequels do quite a bit is just kind of, he just, they overdo it with the voice. Here though, I think it, it's just the right amount. It is just he's just he's doing it like swear to me, and you know he mm. drops that guy. And that is such a like it's often you know parodied and memed now, but like at the time you're like wow, that was the that's the first time you actually see Batman. He's not just like you know wearing that kind of like ski mask. He's not mm. just off in the shadows. Like he's like really you getting a close up of this guy talking to this person. It is so intimidating. They do a good job of showcasing that intimidation factor too but still like skirting the line of how far he'll go. Like, I think that's one of the things this movie does very well when it, and like you said, this is prop as a Batman movie, you know, I think an argument can be made for the Batman now, but up until the Batman, this was probably the best pure distillation of the character we had in live action. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I obviously completely agree. I think this does a really good job of just diving into the broken psyche of Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, Derek, I think that about brings us to the end here. Any final thoughts on Batman Begins? I guess, yeah, just I, I've, I've kind of said pretty much uh, it all, but I think that this is a movie that it wouldn't necessarily be underrated, but it is something that maybe people need to go back and kind of reevaluate it um, mm-hmm. as its own movie that kind of had such an impact. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, Again, like I said at the beginning of this episode, it's kind of like the forgotten Nolan movie because it it gets mm-hmm. it gets overshadowed by how amazing The Dark Knight was and how polarizing Dark Knight Rises was, and then and also we've just had so much. It, it's ridiculous when we think about it because this movie came out less than twenty years ago, right? Uh, Two thousand five, right? Yeah, and in that time, we've now had four Batman. Well, five, you count Kevin Conroy in uh crisis, right? Cause we had, yeah. we had Bale, <laughs> we had, uh, we had Affleck. Then we had, um, 
um, uh, Affleck, or no, sorry, we had Bale, you know, Affleck, and then Pattinson, and then, um, you know, Conroy on Crisis. And then also we had, um, I, I keep forgetting his name, the guy, Scott, was it Scott Glenn, the guy who plays it on um, on Titans. Oh, yeah, 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 he's, uh, Ian Glenn. He's Ian from Glenn. Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, 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 Ian Glenn. So yeah, yeah Ian Glenn yeah. plays him on Titans. So we've had, right. and then, um, so we had five different Batman, and, you know, soon six when we get Keaton back for In the Flash. Yeah. So it's ridiculous. Like in the span of, about 20 within the span of 20 years we're gonna had six different live action batman and you compare that to the previous 20 years from 1989 to 1996 there were just the three and that was it yeah yeah and or even if you go from like like uh the 1960s up until 89 Mm -hmm. until before keaton there was one dude you know yeah yeah so yeah, it, and just like it is amazing to think about how much Batman content, Batman content there really has been in the past twenty years. It's just so it's very easy to see how this movie can get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, totally. And even with within the Nolan filmography, the wider mm. Nolan filmography, because I feel like you know after this, you know, Dark Knight becomes such a huge hit, and that's when he kind of becomes this prestige director. Mm-hmm. And then people like to look at his early films, like Memento and that stuff, and like, oh, this is his early stuff. This is like sliver mid period here. This and I think the Prestige too mm-hmm. kind of get lost to time a little bit because they were yeah. right when he was starting to get a little bit of money, but he hadn't become like the Christopher Nolan monolith yet. He was still making these big budget studio movies, but not like unlimited money, you know? Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good comparison. I think, you know, this movie, and this is really kind of a good model for a lot of directors to follow is, you know, you do like the, the big crowd pleasing blockbuster movie, and then you get the money to do your more personal projects like the prestige, like inception. And that's a good model that I'm not, I don't know if Nolan necessarily set this model, but I think it's, it's a good model for a lot of actors and directors to follow because then you can explore. It gives you the, the freedom to make these more personal projects as opposed to just doing all blockbusters or all personal projects. Exactly. It's the old one for them, one for me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I remember, um, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. There was that that conversation between Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, where he says, "You know, first you do the first you do the big movie, then you do the yard house film, and then you do the film just because your friend says he owes you one." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, Derek. Uh, why don't you tell people uh, where they can find you? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on any of the social media apps. Um, just Derek McDuff um, on or Derek's photos on um, Instagram. Um, you can check out my podcast uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, however you hear this. Check out uh, Underrated and then Infinity Stones and Dragon Bones uh, just by Googling or searching those uh, in your, your podcast app. Um, I'm on Medium as well, um, just Derek McDuff. Um, and then uh, I do a lot of freelance stuff, places like Watch Mojo, things like that, if you want to uh, check me out on any of those sites. Okay, great. All right, Derek, thanks so much for, for coming on again. And um and if anyone hasn't listened yet, I was, we're recording it now, but I, it will, the release date will have come out before this episode. So go back and listen to the episode um, we did on uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever and Infinity Stones and Dragon Bones. All right. Uh, yep, Derek, I'm thanks sure, again. I'm sure it's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope it <laughs> will. I hope it'll turn out to be a good episode. We're <laughs> about to find out. find out soon. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks again for coming on again. You're always welcome back anytime. Thank you. 
Um, that does it for this episode of Superhero Cinephile. SuperheroCinephiles.com is the website. Super Cinema Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And remember, you sign up for the Patreon page, patreon.com slash supercinemapod. You get these episodes a week in advance. And you can also listen to the companion show, um, Superhero Cinephiles Book Club, where we talk about comic books and graphic novels. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Superhero Cinephiles, then you'll also love my companion podcast, the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club. All my Patreon subscribers get access to this exclusive podcast where I review superhero comics and graphic novels. Not sure what comics you want to read next or what you should dive into? I've got you covered on that. I'll be doing reviews, recommendations, and also talking to you about useful entry points if you're interested in reading some comics but don't know where you should start. Plus, you get access to all episodes of the main show a week before everyone else. On all of this, for as little as just a dollar a month, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash supercinemapod, and you can sign up at any subscription amount to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night, good evening, God bless.